Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. All right, Genesis. Genesis chapter 14. We're in a new chapter. We did a whole chapter last time. Today, we're going to be looking at probably verses 1 through 16 is my guess. And I've got here some photocopies of of basically a map that's going to have a lot to do with today's study. Because as we read through this material here in Genesis chapter 14, you'll find that it can get kind of confusing because there's a lot of names. You've got names of people, names of places, you've got names of kings, names of their realms. And so this might help as we do the reading to sort through it a little bit so that you can kind of sort it out, the kings from the realms and and the whatnot as we go. But Genesis chapter 14... And would somebody mind reading, how about verse 1? Let's start with verse 1. At this time, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elazar, Kedor Leomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. Good job, Mike. You did well. Good job. Those are verses one and two. You went twice as far as I expected. I didn't want anybody to be inflicted with that much punishment, but you did it. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well done. So here we have a bunch of names, and what I've done, you can see on the board that I've written behind me, I've kind of started to, to organize them a little bit so we can kind of understand who these people are and, and what it all means. And as we are reading through this, you know, if I was to title this study up until today, I titled this study, Abram, or Abraham, Rescues Lot, or I've got it rumble in the Middle East. Mike in the, like in the locker room in the mornings, you know, uh, he, he does jiu-jitsu on some days, and on those days you can hear him, you can tell what day it is because in the locker room he's like, get ready to rumble! You know, and he, and he shouts that out, and it's, it's kind of a call-out to anybody else that's thinking about coming out to, to do rolling for jiu-jitsu. So this is kind of like that. We're going to end up having a battle here. We're going to have a battle between four kings versus five kings. Okay, so in reading those first two verses there, which Monica read, you end up having the names of the kings as well as the places that they are governing or the places that their realms, okay? And then you've also got in verse two, you've got these kings and their realms, all right? So here's the situation. These kings over here, they're from the Mesopotamian area, okay? Hundreds of miles away. These kings over here, they're kings over smaller territories. These are cities, all right? These are regions Over here, these are cities. So these are individual kings over individual cities. And there's five cities in the plain, and this is near the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. Okay? And these cities, for over a decade, have been paying tribute to these guys over here. All right? They've been paying money to sovereigns over them that have conquered them sometime in the past. They're sending money hundreds of miles away for over a decade, 
And finally, they say, enough is enough. We're tired of this. Really, what are they going to do about it? Is kind of probably what they're thinking. Are they going to like march down here and tell us we got to keep paying? Shinar right here. Amraphel, the king of Shinar. Shinar is Babylonia. Okay, so you remember the map we've looked at, the Fertile Crescent and over there in that other area. Ariok, the king of Elisar, that's another name for Assyria. These are names that sound really familiar as big regions. I mean, world powers. You're talking kings of world powers. Kedor Leomer, king of Elam, which is east of Babylon. And title, I mean, not sure where he was a king, uh, but most people think it was probably Turkey. All right. Some of your translations have goim here, and some of your translations have nations. The reason for that is because in, this is a Hebrew word, which means nations. And so those are the regions that we're talking about. Now, these regions over here, you'll recognize on your map. You can see these in the box on your map. If you look there by the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea, you see Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela. Those are the five cities. And they're often mentioned in conjunction with one another. Maybe not all five together, but if you have groups of them, you'll often see them grouped together. In fact, Adma and Zeboim... You find in other places in the Bible, not only linked together, but they're also linked with Sodom. Sodom is often linked with Gomorrah. Zoar is often linked with Sodom and Gomorrah. The story that we're going to get to regarding Lot and where he went when he left Sodom, he went to Zoar. Okay, so these are roughly in the same general area. So moving on to verse 3. Somebody mind reading verse 3? And all these joined forces in the valley of Sinem, that is the salt sea. Excellent. Very good. Thank you. So what's going on is, if you look at the map, you can see the route that this invading force comes through. Mesopotamian alliance, all right? You can see the route. It starts at the top right corner of your map, and it shows that dark arrow in the squiggly line as they come down. The path that they're following as they go down that squiggly line ends up becoming known as the King's Highway, all right? The King's Highway. In fact, it's called that in Numbers chapter 20, verse 17. It's actually the route that when the children of Israel being led by Moses and then later being led by Joshua, when they end up leaving Egypt, wandering through the desert and heading to the promised land, it's the route they end up taking in the reverse direction that, that we have here in this story. Okay, So it's a thoroughfare. It's a passageway that you'd find caravans. Trade caravans would take this route. Military caravans would go this route. All right, So it's an established pathway that you can follow through this Transjordan area. So they're coming down. These kings, these four kings and their armies are coming down from the top right corner on your map, and they're making their way down and engaging in battle as they go. So you can see there A. I've got A listed there on the right-hand side as it's going down. That's in chapter 14, verse 5, which we're going to get to, and you'll see these other ones being named as, as we get to them. All right, how about verse 4? Somebody mind reading verse 4? For 12 years they have been subject to Cater Lemur, but in the 13th year they rebelled. Excellent. Good job, Dave. Here it's interesting. If you see that word served right there, 12 years they served, the Hebrew word for that is abad. And over on the other side, at the end of the verse, rebelled, the word there is merad. Abad and merad. Abad means to be subject to a sovereign. And abad means to refuse allegiance to and to rebel against a sovereign. And what's kind of sad and also somewhat interesting, both of these words are used to describe Israel's relationship with God. Israel's relationship with God as the entire picture unfolds of the Old Testament, you end up seeing that they served and that they rebelled. And we do that too. Okay. Twelve years they served Shedolamar, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. Verses five and six. Somebody mind reading these? Actually, there's a lot of words in there, aren't there? A lot of different hard to pronounce names. How let's break it up. Somebody want to take verse five and we'll inflict somebody else with verse six. I'll try five. In Sounds the 14th good. year of Shedolamar, and the kings who were in him came 
and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karniam and Zuzim in Ham, the Eminem in Shabalarathiam. <laughs> good job, Ron. It sounds good enough. <laughs> a for effort. A for effort. All right. Good job. I like it. I like it. All right. So if you look on your map, then we're starting to see some of the places that are mentioned in that verse are actually shown on the map. So the first thing I want to point your attention to, if you're looking at that map, you see Rephaim. See the Rephaim right there? That's a people group. Okay. And then the actual locations where the battle was enjoined are right there. Those two different locations. Here in our, as we're reading through this verse, it sounds like it's one in the same place. But you've got there in the map, Karnaim and Ashtaroth. All right, Karnaim and Ashtaroth. So that's where the first battle was enjoined, right there, where I have the letter A. And then moving down from there in that same verse, it talks about how the battle was engaged in Ham with the Zuzim. So if you see on there, you see the people group, Zuzim. And then you see the place was Ham. And then the third one, if you go down, chapter 14, verse 5, letter C right there, Kiriathame, where they engaged in battle with the Emim. Does that make sense? All right, so the map I'm hoping, here's what I'm hoping the map does. It helps you to differentiate people groups from places. All right, so at least we can sort that out a little bit. Here's one of the interesting things that we're reading about so far. In one verse, they've engaged in battle. These kings over here and their armies have come down into the Transjordan area. They've traveled hundreds of miles, and now they're engaging in battle. And in one verse, they've engaged in and won battles against three significant people groups. How significant? In the Bible, all three of these people groups are associated with giants. And you're thinking, wait a minute, giants? Come on, giants are figments of the imagination. Giants are, you know, legends and and lore. There's no real such thing as giants. Well, if you read the Bible and take it for what it's saying, it sounds like there really were some giants. All right? I mean, upon reading the Bible, if you just take it at face value, you come to the conclusion, wow, this is weird. The Bible seems to be teaching there were giants back in the old days. All right? So I'm telling you, these three people groups included giants. I'm thinking if you're living in one of those areas, in one of these people groups, if you've got some fighting men, who are you going to pick? All right? You're probably going to pick your giants. (laughs) I'm thinking you're going to probably pick the biggest, strongest, baddest looking guy or guys and you're going to put them out there as being your front line of defense. All right, whatever the case might be. I don't know military tactics, but perhaps that's something I would think that you're probably engaging in battle with some giants. If there are giants to be had, they're probably out there fighting for your team. All right? And so these kings right here are moving down through the Transjordan and they're winning battles against all these people groups, which include giants in their battles. Why am I telling you this? Because it makes the end of this story all the more impressive as we get there. Okay? Moving on to the next verse. Somebody want to read verse 6. And the Horites in their Mount Seir, as far as El Horan, which is by the wilderness. Excellent. Good job. Thank you, Yvette. So here, if you look at your map at the bottom, you see the place down there where I've got the little uh, arrow and points to E? El Horan. It's got a question mark there because we're not sure exactly where it is, but that, that general area right there. Look at the distance that's been covered. You're probably going, how, how big is this distance? You're doing, as the crow flies from top to bottom here, if you're doing it from the top to the bottom, as the crow flies, 284 miles. If you're doing it on foot, because you've got to go around the, you know, the, the obstacles, 338 miles. Just in this picture. If you want a picture where they came from, here we go, let me draw for you. Whoa, they're over here. They came from over here to fight these guys over tribute that's been being paid for 12 years, and now in the 13th year they rebel. So this big army... They're going city to city. They're conquering people, people. They're taking all the stuff with them. Okay? Somebody want to read verse 7? 
Then they turned back and came to Emishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hassasan Tamar. Excellent. Thank you, B. So here you have on the map, you can see the dark line now makes a turn and it's starting to come upward by a different route. All right, so it's heading back north by a, a slightly different route. And they come to that place, and you can see I've got Kadesh. I've got a little circle around that. The reason I've got that circle is because Kadesh becomes some significant place later on. This is where the people, when they came out of Egypt, refused to follow God's command to go into the land and possess it. All right, moving on from there. How about verse 8? Somebody want to read verse 8? But now the army of the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, Zeboim, and Bela, now called Zoar, prepared for battle in the valley of the Dead Sea against King Kedor, Laomer, of Elam, and the kings of Goim, Babylon, and Elisar, four kings against five. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. I should mention also in this situation, I've got here, you can see I've got a question mark down here for Bela, and I should also be putting a question mark here for Zoar, because the translations, the material that they're using to make your translations, and some of the translations you'll see this reflected, it's not clear whether it's Bela should be over here and Zoar over here. If Zoar is the name of the king and Bela is the name of the realm, or if it's Bela the name of the king and Zoar the name of the realm, or if Bela and Zoar are one and the same and we don't know the name of the king. All right, so there's some ambiguity there, so that's why I put the question marks up there. All right, so here we go. We're having our battle. We're having our rumble, right? We're having our rumble. This is basically where you see the black arrow ends there at the southern end of the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea, and this is where this battle is taking place. All right, verse 10. Somebody mind reading that one? Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. Excellent. Thank you, Dave. Tar pits. Anybody ever heard of a, I don't know, touristy place you can go to somewhere near us that's called the tar pits? La Brea Tar Pits. Right, 32 miles northwest of us, you can go visit the La Brea Tar Pits. It's kind of a fun place. If you haven't been there before, you can actually stand behind a wrought iron gate and look and see the tar bubbling up. This is in downtown Los Angeles. All right, bubbling pool of tar right there in downtown Los Angeles. Yeah, it's right there. And you can go through the museum and you can see all kinds of animals that they've extracted from the tar and that they've cleaned up. And you've got the saber-toothed cats and the woolly mammoths and all kinds of mastodons. I don't, all kinds of stuff. You can see all kinds of stuff there. It's a pretty cool place to visit if you haven't been there before. So when I, that's what I think when I'm reading this verse. And I'm thinking, as I'm reading this verse, it says, wow, some people fell into the tar pits. Oh, man, you're engaging in battle. Oh, maybe you got your sword, maybe you got your spear. Oh, you fall into the tar pit, and you're to be preserved there for all time, it seems to suggest. All right. I will say this, though. The word for fell there, it's Nepal in the Hebrew. It doesn't actually have to require that somebody you know, accidentally fell in and got submerged into the tar. The word can actually also mean to lower yourself voluntarily into something. Or it can be used to let yourself down. Uh, for example, this word is used to describe the way that Rebecca got off her camel. All right, So either Rebecca fell off her camel or she lowered herself down off of her camel. All right, So it may be that people did fall into the tar pits. It may be some of them lowered the, themselves into tar pits. The same word is used to describe the digging of a well for water. All right, So some of the thought is perhaps there were some areas that they mined the tar, and they dug pits, and perhaps some of the people hid in them. Does it make any difference to the story? No, it actually doesn't make any difference to the story. All right, but I'm just throwing that out there so that your image in your mind that I held for so long of these people just falling into this pool of liquid tar and sinking down may or may not be accurate. All right, all right. so falling into the tar, lowering themselves into the tar. Somebody mind reading verse 11 now. So the enemy <clears throat> took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. 
Excellent. Thank you. And how about verse 12? I apologize. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Excellent. Thank you, B. How does this verse, verse 12, describe Lot's location in association with Sodom as far as where he's living? Dwelling in Sodom. He's dwelling in Sodom. Dwelling in... Is this where we last saw him in relationship to Sodom? Go to chapter 13, verse 12. Chapter 13, verse 12. Somebody mind reading that. So while Abram stayed in the land of Canaan, Lot moved his tents to a place near Sodom among the cities of the plain. So over there he was near Sodom. Over there he was living in the plain. And some of your translations will say that he was living in the plain and then even as far as Sodom, as if he maybe even moved closer before the verse was even over. And here by this verse, he's living in Sodom. Lot has progressively been moving closer and closer to the city that's already been described as extremely wicked. In fact, the phrase is unique in the Bible. There's no other place described as that wicked. There's a unique phrase given to how wicked the city is, and Lot is finding himself moving closer and closer to it. Matthew Henry, in his commentary talking about this section, he says, if he, talking of Lot here, if he chose to dwell in Sodom, he must thank himself if he share in Sodom's losses. When we go out of the way of our duty, we put ourselves from under God's protection and cannot expect that the choice made by our lusts should end to our comfort. They took Lot's goods. It is just with God to deprive us of enjoyments by which we suffer ourselves to be deprived of the enjoyment of him. What's the paraphrase of that? What does that mean in a paraphrase? It means that Lot, if he's going to go live with the wicked guys, he should expect to experience what the wicked guys are going to experience. All right? You've seen it time and again in this courthouse where somebody is in trouble because of who they associated with. Right? And you find that in some of these cases you have multiple defendants. And maybe not everybody is equally immersed in the crime as the next guy. That usually in a group of three or four, you find somebody who's going, man, I was just hanging out with these dudes, and I just got wrapped up in this. I just got swept away in the judgment that came and befell these guys. That's what happened a lot here. He's hanging a little too close to the people who end up getting judged. And in them getting judged, he ends up getting swept away with them. All right. So these kings coming through the land, conquering people group, people group, people group, conquering city, 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 end up sweeping with them all of their possessions, their herds, their livestock, their men, their women, their children, their female and male servants. And they're just sweeping through the land and taking everything with them. And Lot, living too close to that judgment, ends up getting swept away as well. We need to be careful who we associate with. What fellowship does darkness have with light? We're called to be ambassadors, but we're not called to live in their houses. We are Christ's ambassadors to this world, and we're to bring the light, we're to shine the light. But you need to be careful. Sharing and witnessing is different than flirting and cohabitating. Don't dwell there. Don't dwell there. That's right. <laughs> we should be in the world, but not out of the world, right? As we talked about in some of the other previous studies, our citizenship isn't even here anyway, right? Our citizenship, if we're followers of God, our citizenship is in heaven. Another uh, quotation from Matthew Henry along here, he says, Many an honest man fares the worse for his wicked neighbors. It is our wisdom to separate, or at least to distinguish ourselves from them. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says this, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Evil company corrupts good habits. And I know there's testimonies in this room. There are people in this room that can say, There was a time in my life, in my past, that I associated with somebody I shouldn't have associated with. And because I had that close association, I'm still paying the price for it today. I'm still feeling the remorse and the regret from decisions that I made in my past that, you know, looking back, I wish I hadn't associated with that person. 
Moving on from there. Kenneth Matthews ends up pointing out the irony of this passage. He says the irony of this passage is that if Kettle Laomer, if he had just been content to move through the land and take the goods, he probably, this is kind of his undoing in taking Lot because it arouses Abram, right? In that kinship responsibility that Abram's got toward his nephew, Lot, all right? Moving on from there, verse 13. Somebody mind reading chapter 14, verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt for the Terebinthes of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshel and brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Excellent. Thank you, Luke. Here we have the first place and the only place where Abram is described as a Hebrew. Abram the Hebrew. This is the first place where the word Hebrew shows up in our Bible. You remember from a previous study that we looked at one of the possible etymological reasons for this. One of the historical reasons why the word Hebrew shows up here and what it might be related to, it might be related to his ancestor named Eber in chapter 10, verse 12. There's another possibility as well. The word that Hebrew sounds like is a word that has a definition of crossing over. That maybe we have here a situation where Abraham is described as a Hebrew as one who crosses over. All right, So it's either Abram, the descendant of Eber, or Abram, the one who crosses over. Or there's a third possibility. The other possibility is that maybe Hebrew is related to a word called Habiru, which is in many ancient texts. It means dispossessed people or wanderers. All right. So three possibilities here that I've found in this study so far is that Abram, the Hebrew, could mean Abram, the descendant of Eber, which I think is probably the most likely one. Or number two, Abram, the man who crossed over, maybe crossed over from Mesopotamia to Canaan. Or you have the uh, third one being that he's a wanderer, and it's related to Hebrew and Habiru. The word Hebrew appears 30 times in the Bible, and pretty much in three different sections. It appears in the sections having to do with Joseph, it appears in the sections having to do with the Exodus, and it appears in the sections having to do with the Philistines. Outside of that, it's pretty rare. So this is the first occurrence of 30 times that it occurs, and it differentiates this people group from foreigners, from outsiders. So it's often used to differentiate the Hebrews from other people. All right. Take it for what it's worth. Maybe more Bible study there. Going on from there, verse 14. Somebody mind reading that. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Excellent. Thank you. The word there for trained servants is Yalid. And uh, Victor P. Hamilton says, Here Yalid does not refer to physical descent. Rather, it designates membership in a group by means other than birth. So here you have people in Abram's clan, other than birth, right? You've got 318 of these guys. Here in particular, the term is applied to a slave or servant whose major function is to provide military assistance. They are not shepherds who grabbed a spear or a sling and headed north some 125 miles. They are individuals capable of making a successful attack against imposing odds. So we've known so far, we've seen the picture so far, Abram's very rich. He's got men and women servants. He's got livestock. He's got herds. He's got all kinds of stuff going on. What's to keep somebody from taking that from you? You've got to have some strong people to protect it. All right. So you've probably got sentinels and guards that in his clan, he's got 318 of these guys to protect his wealth. He takes his 318 trained men, and he goes chasing after these guys. All right? So these guys came through. They sweep through the land. They come from the north. They're moving down to the south. They sweep all of these guys as well. So these guys sweep them all and come, take them all, haul them all away, including Lot. And now they're moving back up. All right? The picture in the story that we have, we don't know which route they took from here to here, but this is the next time they show up. So between here and here... We end up finding out, as we're going to see, a serv- a, somebody that escapes comes and tells Abram what's going on. 
And Abram takes his 318 guys, and he pursues, he goes 125 miles before he even gets to them, before he even catches up to them. All right? Read uh, verse 15, please. Somebody there. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. Excellent. Thank you, Levi. So here you have the situation. They're 125 miles away from where they started out. Abram and his 318 trained servants. And they go up very north in that picture before they engage in battle. And they engage in battle at nighttime. And this was a common tactic. They engage in battle at nighttime. Can I tell you, even with 318 trained servants, you're an inferior force. This army coming through, hundreds of miles, battle proven. They've come through the land, they've swept down, they've beat every single people group that they've come across. And they've swept everything with them. They've taken all the herds, all the livestock, all the male and female servants, and they're just moving through the place like a tidal wave. And they're taking everything with them, undefeated. And Abram and his 318 trained servants are going to have a chance against these? Abram and his 318 servants are an inferior force against this power. All right, They've beaten giants, armies made up of giants. And they're moving through the land, they're going on. And Abram at night comes in and attacks and wins. An inferior force against a superior force. Ends up winning. That's weird. That's God. I don't have enough in me, humanly speaking, to battle Satan. In my life, if I'm going to go toe-to-toe, head-to-head, fist-to-fist against Satan, I'm going to lose. If I'm going on my own strength. It takes a supernatural force to tip the odds in my favor and weigh in my favor. Fortunately, I don't have to fight Satan on my own. I can do all things. Philippians 4.13 says what? I can do all things through what? Through Christ who strengthens me. I can't do all things on my own. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. With Christ's strength, I can march against the truth. With Christ's strength, I am more than a conqueror. With Christ's strength... The devil turns around and flees. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. All right? Abram's able to win, not because of his strength, the strength of his 318 guys. That's an inferior force. He's able to win because God does a supernatural thing there and enables him to win in this lopsided battle. Just as we're empowered by God to win in our lopsided battles. When I'm wearing the armor of God, there's a protection over me that I don't have on my own. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that we do not fight against flesh and blood, but we fight against principalities. We fight against powers. We fight against rulers of the darkness of this present age. We fight against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. If we're to fight on on our own power, all right, we're not going to win. We're going to be overcome. But in Christ's power, there's something completely different that happens. When Satan fought Jesus in the wilderness, do you remember what happened out there in the wilderness? There was those three significant temptations. And then at the end of those three significant temptations, Jesus won each one of them. Ding, 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 ding. He wins all three. And what does the devil do? It says he took off. He took off and waited for an opportune time to come back and engage in that battle again. That would be his tactic with us. When we resist the devil in Christ's power, he takes off. And looking for another time, though, to come back. Don't think that it's going to be one battle and it's over. All right? We've got to be fortified and prepared for any attack that he's going to come and bring, bring our way. And if we're fortified and prepared in our own strength, we're not going to last. But if we're fortified in Christ's strength, can I tell you, the gates of hell will not prevail. 
All right. The gates of uh, picture for a second. The gates of hell. What does that look like? I don't know. They're fiery and they're big and they're heavy. All right. They're made out of steel and they're wood. I don't know. You got the gates of hell. What are the gates of hell doing? Are the gates of hell holding Satan back in the context of that? No. The gates of hell of Satan hide behind the gates, and we're storming the gates. We're kicking on the gates. We're busting the gates down. Come on, Holy Spirit, break this gate. Why are we trying to break in? Because we're trying to snatch people head to hell, and we're trying to pull them out again. Did you know that it describes Joshua in the Old Testament? It's described as one plucked, a brand plucked from the fire. Did you know in Jude 23, it describes us as going in and grabbing people as they're burning. I mean, it says there in Jude 23, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. That's why we're here. We can't do that on our own. We can only do that by the power of God. And we go and crash the gates of hell and the devil's hiding behind it. Ah! We have a situation where sometimes in our lives we think, oh dear God, I'm being attacked by the devil. Please help me. Please help me to survive. That's not the picture we should have. It's not survival. It's not just hide and, and hope that the devil doesn't notice me over here as I'm hiding behind my little spiritual rock. The spiritual picture that we're supposed to be seeing is that when the devil comes attacking, we go, come on, bring it on. I got God on my side. and we're, You're going down. And you give him a flicking like you can't believe, and he's going to take off and leave you for another time. That's the kind of picture that we're supposed to have when we engage in this life of being a spiritual warrior. All right, this picture of Abram. If you ask somebody, describe Abram in one word. All right, a lot of people are going to come up with a lot of one-word descriptions for Abram before they get to the word warrior. Abram is not called to be a warrior as much as he's called to be other things. There are other callings that he has, but you know what? When the time comes, he's ready to engage in warfare. That should be the same for us. Abram's called to be an ambassador. We're called to be ambassadors of Christ. When we're called to be an ambassador of Christ, though, that doesn't mean that we're disengaged from the battle. That means if the battle comes our way, all right, I'm going to be an ambassador that's going to be a warrior right now. And we engage in warfare, but first and foremost, we're known as ambassadors. It's not supposed to be the first definition that people think of. Well, what would be the first word you would think of when I you know, describe Christian? Warrior shouldn't be the first one, okay? But warrior should be one of those hats that you can put on and go, let's go. All right, let's get it on. It's time. All right? You don't look at the devil as somebody you fear. All right? If you're in your own strength, yeah, look at the devil as somebody you fear because he's going to trample all over you. But when you've got the blood of Christ protecting you, oh, no, the devil's not something you need to fear. All right? The devil's going down. All right? All right, let's close this. All right. Yep. Okay, a little bit off my notes there. All right. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, that's kind of the introduction to the armor of God. If you're not familiar with the concept of the armor of God, read that chapter. Read Ephesians chapter 6. The shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the, the feet shod with the gospel, the readiness of the gospel of peace. You need to be familiar with, with this armor, all right? For example, this job that I'm working, I have, I have armor on, okay? I have tools on my belt. I got I got things on my on my feet, and this is all stuff that you don't just plunk somebody in and go put it on. Now, they got to kind of have an idea of where it goes and what it does and what it's designed for and how to wear it. All right, the same with us. We have armor at our disposal. It's in the armor, and God says, "Come and put it on." And if we go in there, we're like, "I never heard of this stuff before. How am I supposed to wear this?" Get familiar with it. All right, get familiar with your armor. Get used to wearing it. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity again to spend time with you. We pray, God, that your spirit would come and whisper into the ears of each of us as individuals, Lord, whatever it is that you want us to take from here today. And it might be something different for me from the next person next to me on my left or on my right or somebody across from the table. I pray that you would help us all, Lord, individually to hear from you as your spirit would be saying, this is what you take today. This is what is yours to learn today. I pray that you would help us, Lord. I pray that you would help us not to cower in fear when somebody talks about warfare and engaging in warfare with the devil. 
because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And so, Lord, we pray that you be in us. And when you're in us, greater. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for that opportunity to be a participant in this grand plan that you've got. Whatever it is that you want to do with our lives, we yield ourselves to you. And we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity also to be instruments in your hands. We pray that you would find us useful, find us able to bring you glory, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. You guys have a wonderful week.